good morning from me. Um, I'm Jim. If, if I don't know you, if I haven't met you, um, me and my wife Rachel, we're the senior pastors, and um, we do ridiculous things like have fun Kayleys in this church. Isn't that good? But we also sometimes talk about Jesus. So um, <laughs> after Alistair's reflection last week on John the Baptist's message and challenge to us, which if you haven't heard, I warmly invite you to go back and hear again on the Kingdom Vineyard website. We've come to the point in our preaching series this morning where we turn our eyes upon Jesus. There was a preaching team meeting, uh, oh, a little while back now when we were looking at uh, the book of Genesis and we were looking at the Psalms and we'd, we'd been through various different uh, Bible passages and topics and Morag, faithful preacher and faithful member of that team, just shouted up, I want to see Jesus. So good news, we're there now. There is so much richness in all of Scripture, of course. So much value in spending time with God in the Psalms, seeing what he's done for us through the Old Testament stories, hearing his invitation to, uh, and challenge to us through the New Testament letters. But there is something, I think, particularly precious about spending time with Jesus, looking at how he lived and what he said when he was walking around the earth. It's taken us a little while in our series in Luke to get to here. We started uh, last autumn, and here we are now in January getting to Jesus' adult ministry beginning. But here in Luke, from chapter 3, verse 21 onwards, we see the adult Jesus stepping forward to be baptized, then going on to be tempted by the devil in the wilderness in chapter 4, and then begin teaching about the kingdom of God and bringing in that kingdom through healing acts of love and mercy. And so for this morning, as we are on the brink of this new and exciting focus on Jesus, we're going to take a little bit of time just to look at the person of Jesus. We're going to do a little Christology this morning, um, which I found out, and Andy, wherever Andy is, um, has just completed a PhD in pretty much this. So could you just turn away from me so I can't see your face? No. <laughs> Every time I say something, look up and Andy goes... Great, isn't it? Those cupboards there close, if you would, if you just step in and thank you, brother. Good. This Christology, though, this is going to be some head stuff. I want us to explore and understand some things, but it's heart stuff as well. What we're going to look at is important for our understanding of who Jesus is, but it's, I hope, going to be important for our relating to him. We're going to look at our passage today in two chunks. We're going to have a little look at Jesus Christ, the human, the son of man and why that's important. Then we're going to have a little look at Jesus Christ, who is God the Son. That is the never has an ending and never had a beginning member of the Holy Trinity, who is our one God. Thirdly then, we're going to spend a little bit of time considering how Jesus is fully man, fully God, and why that matters. So, if you want three points, here they are. Jesus fully man, Jesus fully God, and why that matters. So, if you have a Bible or bible device, why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verse 21. And normally, I'd invite one of you lovely people to read it for us, but seeing as we have a genealogy today, and I'm such a lovely pastor, um, you get to enjoy my voice for just a little longer. However, I'm going to save a bit of time. In that genealogy, our English Bibles help us out by repeating the son of, the son of every time. I'm going to mirror the original Greek a little and just say of to save a bit of time. Luke 
Luke chapter 3, verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, of Heli, of Mathat, of Levi, of Melchi, of Janai, of Joseph, of Mattathias, of Amos, of Nahum, of Esli, of Nagai, of Math, of Mattathias, of Semien, of Josek, of Jodah, of Joanana, of Resa, of Zerubbabel, of Shealtiel, of Neri, of Malki, of Adi, of Kusum, of Elmadam, Elmadam, of Ur, of Joshua, of Eliezer, of Jorim, of Mathat, of Levi, of Simeon, of Judah, of Joseph, of Jonah, of Eliakim, Eliakim, of Mela, of Mena, of Mattatha, of Nathan, of David, of Jesse, of Obed, of Boaz, of Salmon, of Nashon, of Aminadab, Aminadab, of Rab, of Hezron, of Perez, Judah, of Jacob, of Isaac, of Abraham, of Terah, of Nahor, of Serug, of Reu, of Peleg, of Eber, of Shelah, of Canaan, of Arphaxad, Arphaxad, of Shem, of Noah, of Lamech, of Methuselah, of Enoch, of Jared, of Mahalalel, of Kenan, of Enosh, of Seth, of Adam, of God. Amen. There's one or two potential baby names in there. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Arphaxad, dinner's ready. <laughs> Mahalalala, tidy your room. <laughs> no? Okay. I'm being lovingly glared down from the front row here. <clears throat> Point number one, Jesus, the Son of Man. Moving swiftly on. Would you jump back with me to verse 23? We're going to focus on this long list of names, this genealogy. Perhaps, friends like me, when you are reading your Bible, either on your own as part of your relationship with God, or in a home group, do you get to a genealogy and perhaps let out just a little inward sigh? <sighs> really, Lord? A long list of unpronounceable names? Is this going to grow my relationship with you? So, I suspect the Lord knows that. Then why are these not usually our favorite verses included in our Bibles? Genealogies are important because they are anchoring the stories about what happened in the lives of real people. A real and traceable human record of which king was descended from whom in the Old Testament genealogies. See, I can't say any words now. Um, or which tribe was descended from whom. These tell us that what we then go on to read about these people wasn't some fairy story in a made-up distant land, but the real interactions of real historical people with a real God. They anchor us, they ground us. So taking that logic and applying that here to the Gospels, Luke, and also Matthew in his Gospel, gives us a genealogy to say, look, this Jesus guy didn't just appear one day, enter stage left, beamed down from a cloud as a fully formed messenger savior. This is not a story like the angels appearing to individuals in the Bible where they say, don't be afraid, here's my message, can't stay to chat, it's been lovely, see you later. 
And I thought Carol really thought-provokingly and very entertainingly shared exactly this point a couple of weeks ago. Jesus grew up amongst us, amongst humanity. He was born a human. He learned as a child. He caused real worry to his real parents when they couldn't find him. And so this genealogy, this family tree, is grounding our understanding of who Jesus is as a human being born within human history. So this list of names is actually doing quite an important job for our understanding of who Jesus is. For integrity's sake, I'll draw your attention to one thing that might raise our eyebrows. These genealogies end with Joseph, who, how should we put this, biologically speaking, didn't contribute to Jesus being born. So, why? Surely it would make sense for the last name before Jesus to be Mary's, if we're going to trace who he was actually descended from. Sadly, our woman-honoring cultural priorities were not the cultural priorities of the time this was written. It was a man's world. And so, how Jesus fit into the ancestry map of his family seemed to be a legal question, much more about who his adopting father was. If it is any comfort to our potentially offended sensibilities, it's generally understood that Mary and Joseph were probably not separated by too many generations within that same family tree. And so, up to a point, this genealogy is also Mary's, and biologically, Jesus is too. Okay then, disclaimer given, what can we learn from this genealogy? Well, we can note in verse 31, thank you, Joe, that Jesus is descended from King David. Well, that's important because it fulfills prophecy about the Messiah. We can also note that unlike Matthew's gospel, who in his genealogy, he roots Jesus's ancestry in human history as far back as Abraham, and therefore Matthew establishes that Jesus is really human and really is part of God's people. Luke, by contrast to Matthew, he, although he doesn't involve every single step in the line, traces Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam. So Luke chooses to root Jesus' identity alongside all humanity. It sends a message about God coming for all of us. Kind of like the pattern in Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, where God's good news goes from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, but then to the ends of the earth. Jesus is human like all humans. He's one of us, one of us, not just one of God's chosen people. Well, that's one thing that going back to Adam does. Luke name-checking Adam also invites us to compare Adam with Jesus by Luke calling Adam the son of God. It's an interesting contrast. So Adam and Eve were created by God. Jesus is God and was never created. Adam and Eve broke humanity's relationship with God. Jesus has restored humanity's relationship with God. Adam and Eve represent all of humanity up to that point in history. Our disobedience, our brokenness, and our failure. Jesus represents the new humanity brought in by him to reset, even recreate, our relationship with God through him. Luke is telling us who this Jesus is by showing us how he is like us, he's one of us, 
whilst also pointing out crucial differences, which, again, for a list of names, is doing an all right job, right? Last thing on the genealogy, and then I promise we'll move on, is where we find it. If you have a look at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew begins up front with his genealogy. It sets the scene for Matthew's story right from the beginning. Here is who Jesus is. Here is how he fits into the story of God's people. Okay, great. Good place to put a family tree. But in Luke's gospel, we have the nativity story, a glimpse into Jesus' childhood, Jesus as an adult getting baptized, and then his family tree. And then after this family tree, the very next thing that we see is Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness where he's tempted by the devil for 40 days. And Jesse's going to talk to us a bit about that next week. What is the genealogy doing here? Just before it, in verse 22, in Jesus' baptism, we hear God the Father's voice declare, we're going to get it, I'm, I'm testing the visuals this morning, I apologize. We hear in verse 22, God the Father's voice declare, you are my son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. You are my son. The very next thing that happens to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 verse 3 is the devil saying to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. I don't think that Luke sort of forgot the family tree at the beginning and then thought he'd drop it into the story, you know, better late than never. I think Luke is making a statement of who Jesus is. In the baptism and then Jesus resisting the devil's temptations, we see Jesus absolutely is God the Son. And right in the middle of that, we're reminded clearly that Jesus absolutely is a son of mankind. Point two, let's look at that baptism a little more closely and hop up to verse 21. So point two, Jesus, the Son of God. I'll slurp whilst you scroll. If Jesus is the Son of God, the first thing that might surprise us is that he gets baptized at all. Alistair talked about baptism last week in the context of repentance, turning back to God. But Jesus' relationship with the Father didn't need any restoration. It was already perfect. Jesus, who had never sinned, had no sorries to give. Jesus, oh, sorry, Matthew's gospel records John the Baptist protesting exactly this to Jesus. And Jesus answered in, thank you so much, verse 15, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So what was going on there? Why did Jesus... What was the righteousness Jesus was fulfilling by being baptized, if it wasn't repentance? Was Jesus making sure he'd completed all the necessary rituals of a good Jewish worshiper to honor the system of worshiping God? Or perhaps did Jesus see his baptism kind of more of a commissioning, a dedication to the rest of his life in ministry? Or was he setting us an example that we need to follow? I don't think we can be certain, and I think they all sound good to me. So, why not? All of those. And just a passing reminder that if you haven't been baptized and you're ready to dedicate your life to Jesus, to mark your having repented, put your old way of life to death with him, and start a new life with him, this church would love to chat about baptism with you. Talk to your home group leader or a member of the staff team, and uh, 
Do you know what? We might even do some at Easter. That's always fun. Okay, back to verse 21. I want to point out that the amazing what happened next of the baptism, the amazing scene came as Jesus was praying. And I'd love to remind you what I shared three weeks ago, what I think the Lord is specifically inviting this church into this year. That is to remain in me. Jesus invites us from John 15. To make sure that our branch is as well rooted into him as our vine as possible. So that whilst God can open heaven above us anytime he wants to, I think that God is far more keen to meet us as we also make space and time for him. So I'd love to prompt us again. Friends, how can we make prayer a priority in our lives individually and as a church this year? As Jesus was praying, and then verse 22, the Trinity. Let nobody tell you it's not in the Bible. We have God the Son in the water praying. God the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form, that's cool, like a dove. And then a voice from heaven who declares that Jesus is his son. So there's this separate father voice calling this person in the water his son. And then there's this bodily Holy Spirit resting on him. Amazing. The Godhead, the three in one. God in his fullness, triunely present. Can you say triunely present? Probably not. Uh, theologians just shake your head. Oh, I've got a thumbs up. I've got at least one thumbs up. I'm Twice. Great. Hallelujah. I love this little glimpse, this little curtain back of, oh, there you are. In these two short verses, then, 21 and 22, there's a lot going on. And for our focus this morning, we see Jesus being uniquely declared, my son, by God the Father. Jesus of Nazareth, the bloke from the family tree, is God the Son. Great. Still roughly with me? Vague nods? Lovely. Thank you. Love a bit of panto. Thank you, friends. Point three of three, then. Jim, why does this matter? There are, I'm reliably informed, two main errors that we can fall into when we think about Jesus, and both of which many in the history of the church have fallen into. One of those errors is to say, sure, Jesus was a man, but he wasn't, you know, actually really God, was he? Not, not the God, not the real God. And the other is to say, yeah, Jesus was God, but, you know, he wasn't actually really human, was he? The danger of letting go of either Jesus was fully God and Jesus was fully man and actually is fully God and is fully man. The danger of letting go of either of those two is that without both of those things together, we're not saved. What God the Son did for us when he came to live amongst us, die for our sins, was raised to give us new life, and ascended into heaven, without Jesus being fully God and fully human, those things don't work. Why is it a problem if Jesus isn't fully God? If we said that Jesus was fully human, humanity, tick, but not actually God the Son. He wasn't fully God. Maybe he was just, I don't know, a really holy man, God's favorite or something. If that were the case, then this Jesus would have been trapped in the same sinful, broken system that all of humanity is born into. The 
only human version of baby Jesus would have been born with the same sinful brokenness that we all inherited. And no matter how holy or obedient he then was, he would not have been able to present the perfect, holy, and innocent offering on the cross that fulfilled the law on behalf of humanity and removed the power of sin from the rest of us. We needed God to do it. And anyway, as John's Gospel declares about Jesus, in the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. And the Word was with God, the Father. And the Word was God, the Son. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Any created thing came from this uncreated being, eternal member of the Trinity, God the Son. There's another subtly different heresy, still along the Jesus wasn't fully God lines, that came from a teacher called Arius in the 300s AD. Arius taught that Jesus was a created being, created before the rest of creation, but still not God himself, a created sort of representative. But again, no super angel or created first deputy of God could redeem humanity and restore us to true union with God. If we suggested that Jesus was not truly God the Son, but was another created being, well, that means that the incarnation, Jesus being born, would not have been God uniting himself to humanity. It wouldn't have been God meeting people as Jesus wandered around, looking into their eyes, loving them, healing them. It wouldn't have been God dying on the cross and giving us his power and authority. It wouldn't have been God the Son ascending into heaven and representing us lovingly to God the Father. It matters that we recognize and worship Jesus as our God. It matters so much. There's a legend in the early church, the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD, that Bishop Nicholas of Lyre was listening to Arius teaching that Jesus wasn't fully God and got so offended on Jesus' behalf that he is said to have crossed the floor and slapped Arius mid-preach. But that Bishop Nicholas is the one we call Saint Nicholas. Yes, that Saint Nicholas. So, you better watch out. <laughs> oh yeah, you better preach right. You better not fall from Orthodox theology. I'm telling you why. Santa's school of divinity aside, if we let go of the truth that it really was God the Son who entered the world as the baby Jesus, then our freedom from sin would not have been achieved by God, and we're not truly reconciled to him by the perfect offering. Humanity is not truly united to God in Jesus in that case, and we've not truly met God himself in Jesus. Those are big things, right? So it matters. Jesus was fully God and still is fully God. Okay, that's why we need to hold on to that. What about the other side then? The other error we could slip into is, yeah, Jesus, he was fully God, sure, but not really fully human, you know. Maybe, you know, like a holy puppet or something. Definitely God, but, you know, just looked like a human. God's spirit controlling a body, right? God in a man suit. What do we think? And the thinking is, 
this is God we're talking about. You know, the, the author can't enter the story. The, the creator can't be amongst it. It doesn't work like that, right? And God couldn't join himself to humanity, not actually. And God couldn't die, right? It must have just been a human death with God sort of watching, hovering a bit. But again, John's gospel speaks clearly to this question, declaring in one of my favorite ever Bible verses that the word became flesh, became flesh, didn't zip up flesh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. In John, again, in his gospel, chapters 20 and 21 He also makes sure to include stories of the resurrected Jesus eating with his disciples, allowing them to touch the wounds in his side. John is making sure that we see a really physical Jesus and a physically real Jesus. Paul declares in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verse 4, that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus fully man, it's important, and here's the danger. On the cross, if Jesus wasn't fully human, then humanity wasn't involved in the perfect sacrifice on humanity's behalf. We wouldn't have been involved in paying our own debt, not part of our own restoration. Humanity had to make that sacrifice. Without humanity dying on the cross, humanity's debt still stands. But without God dying on the cross, humanity didn't have the holiness or perfection to offer. We couldn't afford the debt. So we need both. Jesus fully God, Jesus fully man. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us, Since the children, that's us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. There are many various and much deeper than this theories of atonement of what exactly the mechanism was, and we're not going into those depths, but it's important that we hold on to when we look at this Jesus, who is the vine, who our branch needs to be rooted into, that he is fully man and is fully God, worthy of our worship and also able to relate. Either error takes the glory out of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. If it's just a man who died, God didn't rescue me. If it's not a man who died, just some sort of show from God, then God didn't die for me. And I think it also matters that God the Son became fully human for a more relational rather than theological reason. I suspect you don't need me to tell you, life can be hard. If we're going to successfully relate to God, then knowing that God doesn't just see our pain from far away, sort of saying a heavenly there, there, but instead that God has lived in this beautiful but broken world, has wrestled with the difficulties of life, has been tempted to just give up, to take the easy way out, instead of obeying God the Father, has seen pain coming towards him, felt anxieties and heartbreak that caused his blood vessels to rupture. If this is our God, and 
he is. If God the Son sitting in the throne room of God the Father is still that same scarred human, how much more will we be able to say with confidence, yeah, he gets it. And how much more will Jesus look at us and say, I know. I know, beloved one. I know. I'm with you. This might not affect the mechanism of what's going on on the cross and in the tomb and the resurrection. It doesn't affect the deal, as it were. But I think it affects deeply how you and I and people who are acquainted with difficulty or suffering may be able to receive that offer and live with God from that moment on. So Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ the Lord, is the almighty king of the universe, all-powerful, whose name can move mountains, in whose name we've seen healings in this church, who is our God and is worthy of praise. And this Jesus knows what it is like to live within this world under a corrupt and oppressive government. He knows the feeling of wondering how the food is going to be put on the table. Knows what it's like when things hurt and don't seem to be getting fixed. The God who we talk to in prayer dealt with stupid people. Dealt with aggressive people. Has felt rejection, fear, physical agony, emotional agony. This, as well as God dealing with the sin that separated us from him, matters. So friends, I think that in today's passage, and in a genealogy of all things, Luke has shown us crucial insights into who Jesus is, and done so right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We saw, through the interruption of Jesus' family tree, his very real, very real word-became-flesh place in humanity. Jesus of Nazareth, the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the flesh-and-blood human. And in this glimpse of God that we saw in Jesus' baptism, we saw the glory of heaven opening and a clear picture of God the Son in his place in the Trinity, with the love of the Father, the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. We're going to change gear and, and have an opportunity to spend some time with God responding in a moment. And as we do, here's my invitation to you today. How do you need to meet with Jesus today? Do you want, do you need to meet the God of the universe? Because he's here. Do you want, do you need to spend time with someone who knows your pain? He's here. Same guy. But how do you need to meet him today? Why don't you stand and we'll pray and start some ministry time. So, Lord Jesus, we worship you. We honor you. We praise you as 
eternal, glorious God that you are. Worthy God. And we offer you our praise, our worship, and give you all the glory. And we thank you, Lord, that the rescue mission that you offered to us to reunite us back to you is one where we see you having done life. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you can relate to us from the same position of, yeah, I've been there. Would you come and meet us, Lord, in whatever way we need to hear from you, whatever way we need to meet you today? Amen.